The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back, boys and girls, to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across me is the one, the only, Tammy, the Terror Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. Man, my mouth is on fire. That's some hot, freaking hot sauce on these burritos. I know. That green sauce is amazing, though. I know. God dang. You have to slap your grandma good. So, <clears throat> let me tell you how I actually got the idea for the episode that we're doing today. I... You know I listen to a lot of horror-based books, right? Yeah. All right. Well, there's one that, um, and one of the main char- characters is named Shane Ryan, and he hunts ghosts. Okay. Ones that kill people. And he winds up in Canada on Highway 401. He wi- he kills ghosts that kill people. Yes. Serial killing ghosts. Kind of, yeah. Okay. And possessed objects and shit like that. Anyway, that's where he winds up. And they happen to mention in the book, and uh, the, the, the author is Ron Ripley. He uh, he writes several series and everything like that, and they're really good. Um, at least I think so. Anywho, um, they mentioned all the killings that were happen happening up on Highway 401 in Canada, outside of Ontario. Okay. And so I, I I'm out of town, and I'm at my hotel, and I, you know what? I'm going to look this up, and sure as shit. It shows all these killings and these serial killers that have been busted there and so many more that they haven't even found yet. Right. I said, holy cow. No, this is like legit. We have to look at Highway 401. Yeah. And when you gave it to me to, you know, look at real quick today to, you know, write up, I was actually kind of shocked. Yeah. It's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do some business before we get out of here. Number one, y'all need to be getting onto Facebook and joining Citizens of Brutal Nation. Come and interact with us, damn it. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, get over to our dang merch shop. Yeah. I, give them the information on that because it's I can't. tbenterprises.printify.me. And M-E, as in me, myself. Me, as in me, myself, and I. <coughs> the people I talk to all the time. Yeah. But that's our, our new merch store. That way you get it directly from our supplier. And um, everything's over there so far. We keep adding more. I'm slower to add than I wanted to be, but we're adding more. That's because we still have a shit ton to do. we got a ton I'm of shows coming up, that. and it's just fucking good Yeah, times. you have your shows coming up. I have all the other shit I'm working on. and Right, right, right. And we're trying not to have to become hookers at the truck stop to pay the bills. It's great. I know. Scott's <laughs> struggling. I'm struggling, man. I can't. I can't handle another guy grabbing my ears. I know what I'm doing. Damn it! I know what I'm doing. No need to guide me. No need to guide me. I know I'm a professional. Damn it! I'm glad you said that, not me. Uh, I gotta poke fun at myself every once in a while. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think that was all the business. All right. Without you think further ado. Yeah. Is, is all it right. It? I think you're right. Okay. God damn! Don't make me worry, man. I'm like, <laughs> I freaking forget something because that—that's a definite. I can forget. Well, shit. you know. Yeah. So you know, we have covered other several other cases where a stretch of highway was the breeding ground for one or more serial killers. I mean, for instance, we already covered the Highway of Tears in Canada, which is over here in BC, right? And then we have not over here. We're not well, in Canada. Over up above us in BC. Yeah, it's above us in BC. Uh, that's what I meant. I meant Ontario's on the west on the side. En- on the west side. West and then, side. And Ontario. And, and Ontario is actually we're one of our listeners and fans list, uh, yes. list. And they've actually got their own radio show. And her name is Nola. Yes. Um, God. I, I can't remember her last name right now. And I had it written down. I and I can't see it up on my desk. Son of a bitch. But I was going to give her a shout out. So, Nola, this is out by you and your husband's neck of the woods, man. So That's right. That's right. Let's have some fun with this shit. So, you know. So we did the Highway of Tears. Then we, there's Highway 20 here in Oregon. We talked about that. John Aykroyd. Right. John Arthur Aykroyd. Right. And then there were also the B1 murders in Africa. Remember those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've actually had people write us about that. We did. We did. So today we're actually going to talk about Highway 401 near London, Ontario, Canada. Now, a little known fact. Between 1959 and 1984, London, Ontario was known to have the largest concentration of serial killers than anywhere else in the world. They had a successful breeding program or something. Yes, they did. Over the 25-year span, there were 29 documented murders 
Of those 29 murders, more than half at 16 have never been solved. Holy shit. Yeah, that means that 13 of the murders were solved. And those 13 murders were attributed to three different serial killers. And I want to address these three real quick. Right, right. First, there was Gerald Thomas Archer, a.k.a. the London Chambermaid Slayer who was active for two years between January 1969 through January 1971. All three of his victims were females who worked for local hotels, hence the moniker. And he was born in 1932 in London, Ontario. And by the time he was 18 years old, he had acquired an extensive criminal record for crimes such as robbery, possession, and breaking and entering. Now, in 1966, when he was 34 years old, he started a pen pal with a rela- pen pal relationship with a woman known only as Mary. Now, Mary and Gerald met face to face in December the following year, and they were married 11 days later. And they moved to the small Ontario farming community of Merlin until October of 1970. I got to congratulate him, man. I, you know, I've been married several times and none of mine have been in that short of a time. You know what, dude? Kudos. You got me beat. Like, hands, hands fucking down. 11 days after you meet him? Yeah, damn. Right? <laughs> like, you could have timed that with a stopwatch. Hi, my name's Gerald. Let's get hitched. Okay, let's go. <laughs> They got married so goddamn fast, probably took the freaking pain off the chapel. Right, right. So on January 31st, 1969, 62-year-old Jane Woolley was stabbed and beaten to death in her apartment on York Street in London, Ontario. Her body wasn't discovered. Hang on. (coughs) Choking on a piece of rice. Yeah, that's what you're choking on. Her body wasn't discovered until, shut up, February 3rd by one of her friends who then notified the police. Jane worked at the London House Hotel on Dundas Street as a chambermaid. When the authorities arrived, they discovered the money was missing from her purse and that she had on very little clothing. Therefore, the investigators believed that her attacker, attacker was in the process of raping her when she was killed. Or, or, or she was a stripper and a really bad stripper and he demanded a refund. He's, he's like, that's some bullshit stripping right there. I've yeah. I see my From grandma. From a 62-year-old. My grandma strips better than that. I want my money back. Done. That was gross. Freaking money back. Then on September... You like how I worked that in, though? Yeah, that was disgusting. I thought that was pretty creative, but thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Tip your waitress. Yeah. Then on September 4th, 1970, 57-year-old Edith Othier was stabbed and beaten to death in her house on (coughs) William Street. Now, Mary Gray, her neighbor, discovered her remains the following day. Edith worked at Chatham's William Pitt Hotel as a chambermaid. As with Jane's murder, the authorities discovered money had been taken from her purse and her attacker had raped her before he killed her. Then on January 23, 1971, 57-year-old Belva Russell was found beaten to death in her apartment on Adelaide Street South in Chatham. Coincidentally, that is the same street where Gerald and his family had moved to in October the previous year. Now, Belva also worked as a chambermaid for the local Merrill Hotel. Now, at approximately 2 a.m. on the morning of the murder, Reginald Tomlinson, Belva's common-law husband, was returning home when he ran into a man he didn't recognize running from the building. He didn't think anything of it until he entered the apartment and found Belva's half-naked body. The condition of the corpse led the authorities to believe her attacker was attempting to rape her when she struggled and he beat her to death. Now, on February 12, 1971, the authorities took Gerald in for questioning in relation to Belva's murder. At the station, he was fingerprinted and placed in a lineup, during which Reginald positively identified him as the man running from the apartment. So he was quickly arrested and charged with non-capital murder. He went on trial in June that same year in the Kent County courtroom of Justice W.F. Donahue. And after the jury announced their guilty verdict and the judge sentenced him to life in prison, he shouted out, that's only the first strike against me. The ball game isn't over yet. God damn. Yeah. So he actually received parole in 1985 and wandered around as a drifter until 1995 when he died of a heart attack. Nobody claimed his body, so he was buried in a local potter's field. But shortly after his death, his estranged wife and daughter went to the authorities and said that Gerald had gotten drunk one night and told them he murdered Edith. 
As a result of that new information, investigators exhumed his body in February of 2000 so they could collect DNA samples from him. After tests were run, they were able to link him back to the murder of Jane by the DNA found on cigarette butts discovered near her body. Then there was Christian Herbert McGee, a.k.a. the Mad Slasher. He was an active serial killer in Strathroy and Mount Bridges, Ontario, from 1974 through 1976. He was born in 1948, although he resembles Andre the Giant in his facial features, nothing is really known about his childhood. Upon his arrest, he was given a psychological evaluation which determined he had personality disorder with classic sexual sadism, and he talked about having fantasies that involved torture, cannibalism, necrophilia, and dismemberment. He's known to have attacked five women, two of which survived. Now, first, there was 19-year-old Judith Barksy. On March 1st, 1974, he attacked Judith while she was walking home from a local pizzeria with her food. During the attack, he threw her down on the ground and slit her throat. While she was lying in a pool of her own blood, he put his hand down her pants, down her undone pants, and fondled her. Before he left her for dead, he took all the money she had on her person. The following day, a man was headed to his mailbox when he found Judith's body lying by the road. Beside her was, body was the pizza box, a chocolate bar, and some soda bottles. Then, on June, I'm sorry, in June 1975, Christian attacked 18-year-old Rosalie Winters while she was walking toward Alexander Park. When he grabbed her, he began to strangle her so that he could gain control and told her he fully intended to rape her. As he began to tear her pants from her body, the zipper malfunctioned, and he couldn't get them off. Frustrated, he choked her until she lost consciousness. Then he fondled her genitals before he left her lying on the side of the road for dead. Thankfully, she survived. Then, Christian (coughs) murdered 19-year-old Patricia Jenner on October 20th, 1975, in her Mount Bridges residence. She was a friend of his, so when he knocked on her door, she welcomed him into her home while her infant daughter, Rachel, was asleep upstairs in the crib. At approximately 5 p.m. that same evening, when her husband, Dennis, arrived home from work, he found Patricia's dead body laying on the floor of the kitchen. Thankfully, he found his baby unharmed in her crib. He immediately called the police, who were quick to arrive on the scene. When they arrived at the house, the authorities discovered several pictures strewn around the floor of the kitchen near her body. And this led the investigators to theorize that Patricia and her killer knew each other and the two of them had been going through photos when she was attacked. Now, sometime after he arrived and while Patricia was showing him pictures, Christian threw her down on the floor, ripped off her clothing. However, before he raped her, he suddenly stopped what he was doing. She had started putting her clothes back on when he took a black shoe or bootlace and strangled her until she lost consciousness. Then he took his jackknife out and slit her throat. While the law enforcement officials were questioning Patricia's neighbors, they found an elderly woman that said she saw a man who had shoulder-length dark hair, dark-colored hair, pull into her driveway and get out of a late-model, light-colored Oldsmobile. Then Sylvia Holly. Jennings was hitchhiking outside London, Ontario, on November 3rd, 1974, when she was picked up by Christian. After she was in his vehicle, he drove her to an isolated area on Mount Bridges Road and ordered her to remove all of her clothing. She hesitated, so he tore them off of her. She began to struggle, and he punched her hard in the side of the head to gain control. Once she was subdued, he brutally raped her. When he was finished, he choked her until she lost consciousness. Then he took a bottle and hit her in the head, which fractured her skull. Dude, this dude's a total dickhead. I know. Fuck. Then he left her lying on the side of the road for dead, but she too survived, thankfully. Then, finally, uh, Susan Susan Lynn Scholes, a 15-year-old girl, wanted to go to her parents' cottage in Hillsborough Beach and decided to hitchhike there on June 15, 1976. Remember, this is an era when everybody hitchhiked. I was just going to mention that. Everybody. Because we, I know that we have some younger listeners. Though, what the hell was she hitchhiking? Was she hitchhiking? Why didn't she call Uber? Yeah, we were then, dude. Um, you know, everybody hitchhiked. Uh, and it, it, all in all... It was a relatively safe way to get around. Yeah, you know, there wasn't like a... I mean, well, all depending on where you are, you know, like apparently yeah. up here at freaking Highway 401, the breeding ground of... Goddamn serial killers, right. or Los Angeles, right, right, or New York. 
Yeah, or New York. Like, if you were in a major city sitting there doing that, mm-hmm. then, yeah, you'll probably get killed. But if you're, you know, like, even I-70, which we had the I-70 killers. Right. Several I, of them. Yeah. Um, I-70 Strangler and the I-70 Killer. Yeah. Right. You know, granted, there, there, there were them, but there, the chances are, even on high, on I-70, if you're hitchhiking, you're you got like a 95% chance that you're going to make it where you're going no worse for wear. Well, I was going to say, my sister hitchhiked everywhere back in the day. Your sister's a mean-looking chick, so I'd be terrified of her. <laughs> Sorry, Missy. Not as mean as me, but all right. No. And not as hairy as you either. You whatever. So. She sent me a, a picture today of a t-shirt that says, I'm the middle child. I'm why we have rules. <laughs> she sent me a picture of something she found. She says, I saw these and I thought of you as two gnomes. It's a yeah, she sent the trolls. She sent those to me too. Yeah, they're naked. Like yes. the dude's wang's hanging out and it shows the chick's tits. The naked trolls. Yeah, she said, those are gnomes, dipshit. Oh, whatever. She said, I saw these and I immediately thought of you. Oh, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. No, she's got my book that I left in her car. I didn't even see that. All I saw was uh, gnome dick and gnome titties. <laughs> That's all that mattered, right? That's all that mattered. Then I started thinking about dick and titties all day. Yeah. So that afternoon, her brother actually drove her to Forest so she could buy some batteries before she hit the road. And the last time she was seen alive was at approximately 1.30 p.m. as she was walking toward County Road 12. According to reports, a local forklift driver witnessed Susan getting picked up by a man driving a 75 pickup truck. And the markings on the truck indicated it belonged to a roadkill removal company out of Strathroy. This called, idea, was, was it called Sasquatch Removal Services? No, it didn't say what it was. This identification led the authorities to Christian when the owner of the truck uh, of the company told them he was the employee driving the truck on the day of the murder. Now, Susan's body was discovered by a local farmer on June 16th at approximately 2.15 p.m. An autopsy revealed she had had suffered a vicious rape before her attacker choked her until she lost consciousness. Then he stabbed her multiple times in her chest and throat. And the medical examiner also noted a laceration right above her vaginal area measuring approximately 20 centimeters in length, which is quite substantial. Okay, look here. Look here, guys. Quit mutilating people's genitalia. For fuck's sakes. Okay, look, I understand if you're a serial killer and you're killing people. It's not right. I don't condone it. But okay, you, you do you. You know, but quit stabbing people in their dicks and their pussies and their tits. Right. Jesus Christ, come on. Exactly. Have some decency. Have some pride in your work, for God's sake. That's right. Now, check this out. During his trial, the jury actually, in 1997, the jury actually found him not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was sent to the, I can't even try to pronounce this town's name, but it's the Waypoint Center for Mental Health Care. It's a maximum security mental hospital where he has been housed ever since. Then we have Russell Maurice Johnson. I like the name Maurice. Some people call That's me Maurice. That's actually my ex-boyfriend's middle name, but yeah. Now I don't like it anymore. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't like him either, so there you go. You know, some people call me Maurice because I speak of the pompadous of love. <laughs> Are you a joker, a smoker, and a midnight joker? And a space cowboy, baby. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Anyways, he was born in 1947 and was an employee for the Ford Motor Company of Canada who had a hobby of weightlifting. Now, Russell would see his victims around town and stalk them to find... Oh, he was also called the Balcony Killer. Sorry. Hey, by the way, my hobby used to be weightlifting, but I quit dating chunky chicks. That was horrible. That was terrible. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I've I've been showing myself out the door and fire myself now. That's right. I have. I. I. I I will see chunky chicks. Uh, That's terrible too. You know what? Let's just pretend like I never said that. (laughs) Let's pretend like you never said anything right there. Like because the joke (laughs) sounded great in my head. Yeah, it didn't come out very well. But then when it came out of my face hole, (laughs) not so much. No, I, I got nothing. I guess I'm a fat dude, so. There you go. And and I actually do prefer chicks that have meat on their bones. I don't <laughs> like super, super skinny chicks. That's gross to me. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to break them. That's why. I know, right? Like, to be honest, like if, 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 if I'm looking at a chick who's way smaller than me, I'm sitting there. I'm not even worried about, you know, getting into their pants. I'm worried about, A, feeding them, and two, <laughs> not breaking you them. You mean not feeding them? <laughs> oh, no. That right there is the worst. That is the worst. When you take them out, and I've, I've bitched about this in meetings before, when we've all been shooting this shit, 
is that, you know, you take a girl out and you're having a really good, uh, you know, uh, a good dinner. Mm-hmm. You're, you're waiting. And the, the, the maitre d' comes over, the waiter goes over, comes over and goes, hey, what will you have? And I'm like, I'm going to take a whole cow and uh, <laughs> half of a pig, throw some chickens on there. I'll take 15 potatoes. Um, let's see what. And you know what? Leave a whole bottle of Jim Beam right here. And she, I'll have a side salad. <laughs> now, there's a reason why that pisses me off, boys and girls. And let me tell you why. And this is no matter who I bring with me, okay? It doesn't matter if it's man or woman. It'll piss me off. Because then, as soon as that person says that, everybody turns around. What a dick. He's only going to get them a side salad and he's eating at the restaurant? What's wrong with him? What an asshole. And then I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. Nobody ever assumes, you know what? I bet you this this dickhead over here fucking told her or him that they could order anything they want. Anything. And they're making a choice. No. It's automatically... What a total dickhead. <laughs> Look at what he's doing. Oh, my God. How rude. Ugh. Ugh. Screw him. <laughs> every time. Every fucking time. Every time. And my, my, my rule is this right here, man. If I, if I take you out somewhere, number one, I can afford where I'm taking you to. I don't, I don't overspend. Uh, try not to. You know, so order what you want. Yeah. Or, you know, fucking order. But order food. That's the main thing. You have to, don't, a side salad's not food. Okay. No. That's a. It's a promissory note. <laughs> I was going to say. That's that it, is. Yeah. It's like a, it's letting you know there's more to come. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> hey, graze on this. The good stuff's coming. This is just to wet your whistle a little bit. That way they got something to chew on. You know, have fun with it. Or don't. Or just leave it there and rot. Nobody gives a shit. Like, nobody passes by a table and goes, oh, my God. They left their whole side salad sitting right there. <laughs> That's fuck. No, people just go uh, pass. Go. I guess they didn't want the side salad, and they fucking they, they they go on their way. You know, it's not like leaving a whole steak on the table or nothing like that. Yeah, no. So side salad's not even a damn meal. Okay, yeah. so knock it the fuck off when you guys. I'll just uh, a side salad with just a drop of vinaigrette. Fuck you. Kiss my sweaty nuts. <laughs> Order some damn food. Okay, I don't even care if you eat it all. I don't. Yeah. Just order some freaking food so you got a good plate in front of you. You know, maybe take a nibble here and a nibble there. Take That's a doggy right. bag. That's fine. Yes. You know, sit there and make me. Meanwhile, they're they're like leading in, like they're, they're calling in spare chefs and everything like that. Going, woo, we're tired. No, we've got no more cow left. Scott <laughs> ate it. Scott ate it. <laughs> That fat guy over there ordered it. The big fat bastard <laughs> over there ate a whole goddamn cow. That's right. And now what's he looking at? God dang, I think he's eyeing you out, Cliff. That's horrible. <laughs> so after he stalked his victims to find out where he they lived, Russell would wait outside their home long enough to make sure they were asleep. Then he would fly, find a way to climb up their outside wall, sometimes multiple stories, to gain entry into their apartment. Once he was inside, he often watched them sleep for an unspecified amount of time before he raped and suffocated them. In addition to the seven women he was known to have murdered, he also sexually assaulted 11 other women in the area who survived their attacks. The murder victims included uh, 1973, 20-year-old Mary Catherine Hicks. In 1973, 42-year-old Alice Ralston. Um, you notice his like victim pool kind of wide age range. Um, 1974, 25 year old Eleanor Hartwick. Variety's the spice of life. I'm telling you, man. Right. That, why, why do you think I'll date anyone from nine to 90? Oh my God. Okay. 18 to 90. I don't date, <laughs> I, don't, I can't date nine year olds anymore. 14? 18. Okay. <laughs> How old are you? 14? 18. All right. Yeah. <laughs> then also in 1974, uh, 49-year-old Doris Brown. Uh, on December 31st, 1974, uh, 23-year-old Diane Beats, B-E-I-T-Z. She sounds like she should be a rapper. Like, for right? real. Like, yo, 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 Diane Beats in the house. D-Beats, yeah. <laughs> That's fucking, that, that is a hardcore R&B rapper, yeah. freaking female rapper name right there. She should have capitalized on that shit. Yeah, then in April of 1977, apparently he took a couple years off. April of 1977, <coughs> well, from killing anyways, he probably 
you know, assaulted the other ones during that time. Well, you know, you got family obligations. Right. And you have Christmas. You have all, you know, all the holidays. And, uh, you know, then Easter pops up, and then you got people's birthday parties. And yeah, yeah, you're you right. Family do, obligations. Yeah, you got to do your taxes. And then, the, <laughs> you know, you're like, your boss is like, dude, you got to work overtime. You're like, fuck. Look, guys, I need time for some killing. That's right. You knock your shit off because you're ruining my killing time. Right. So in April, April in 1977 was 23-year-old Luella George. And then July of 1977 was 22-year-old Donna Veldboom. Um, what in the hell did you V-E-L-D-B-O-O-M, just say? V-E-L-D-B-O-O-M, Veldboom. That right there, okay, because I love names. That reminds me, I, I think that she should weigh about 350. You think so? And be, but not like all fat. Like she's like strong as shit. Uh, like a um, a roller derby chick. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you, you know, somebody goes, hey, you want to meet my, my wife? Yeah. yeah, let me meet her. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> And you're like, whoa! <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, you, you just scared me. I got I should have worn my brown pants. <laughs> God damn. Right? Now, now I know why you don't have an alarm system or a guard dog. I totally get it. I get it. There you go. Now, Russell was al- arrested in July 1977 for the murder of Diane, Luella, and Donna. During his interrogation, he told police inspector Robert Young that in 1969, he had admitted himself to the London Psychiatric Hospital voluntarily. While there, the psychiatrist diagnosed him as a sexual deviant. He also stated that if he would have received adequate mental and medical treatment, he didn't think he would have killed all those women. Okay, you know what? Let's stop right there. I kind of agree with that. Yeah, well, look at Carol Cole. (coughs) Uh, That's exactly who I was going to bring up because I... I we have we have certain killers that we've covered that that are like poster children for what we what we talk about on different episodes mm-hmm. like like this one here Carol Cole mm-hmm. because Carol Cole did the same thing he went he checked himself into a hospital several several of them mm-hmm. and at, at at one point like literally he went and said hey look I need help I'm going to kill people you know and yeah they said, I don't think I can have sex without killing her yeah and and the and the the nut house said, <laughs> here's a bus ticket to San Diego. <laughs> you have a nice trip. You have a nice trip. Bus ticket. Yeah. Greyhound's right over there. Two blocks on the left. All right. That's bye right. Bye. You can't miss it. But yeah, here's the dude asking for a shit ton of help. Yeah. Not getting the help that he needs. Even when he was in the hospital and telling the do- uh, his, his uh, doctors, hey, don't let me out, man, because I'm crazy and I'm going to kill people. Yeah. And they're like, oh, he's fine. Get on your merry way. Then what happens? He kills people. Which is exactly what he said he was going to do because he needed help. Right. And then they don't believe he did it. He did it. And then, yeah, yeah that, that was the Let's best part. Let's not even talk about that. Oh, my God. His yeah. wife, his dead wife is tied up in the closet, dead, and she must have did it herself. Because it was, at, what, ruled an accident or a suicide or something? It was an, yeah, uh, it, it was an accident because you know, she was an alcoholic. Um, she didn't tie herself up and die by accident. I'm just yeah, saying. or put herself in the closet. Meanwhile, <laughs> here's Carol Cole walking around going, guys, it's me. I'm mm-hmm. the one who did it. Sir, you need to go somewhere else. We're investigating a murder here. Damn, Chuck, we'll never catch this this homicidal maniac. Guys, it's me. Sir, you need to be somewhere else, okay? <laughs> right, We're right. detectives. We're detecting. It's like, Jesus Christ. No, um. They needed blue. But <laughs> No shit. We're looking for paw prints. But, um, so Carol Cole is sitting there trying to find, you know, help. That he, so right. he does what he does. He, he kills people, you know, he, he's having sex and, 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 uh, and murdering women. And then everybody turns around and says, you're a monster. Yes. Well, hold on. Hold on one second, motherfuckers. Yeah. What makes a monster? Is it the person who asked for help that didn't get the help? Yeah. Or is it the people that refuse to help? If if I'm knocking on your door and I say, hey, look, um, if I don't get a glass of water right now, I'm going to have to, I don't know, break into the house next door and steal water. Right. And I'm begging for water, and you say, no, 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 I'm not going to help you. Well, if I break into that house next door to get water. Who's at fault? Yeah, who's really at fault? You right. could have stopped it. You yeah. could have given him the right help. Now, granted, back when Carol Cole was killing in the 60s. Um, yeah, 60s and 70s. The 60s yeah. and 70s. We didn't have the uh, the really the, the knowledge. mental health resources. And, and the knowledge that we have now. Right. That's true, too. So I'm going to give him that. But. But still. If the guy is sitting there telling a professional, look, if you let me out of here, I'm going to kill people. 
Yeah. Why in the fuck? Exactly. Would exactly. you go, oh, you know what? You're fine. Go on your merry way. Hey, thanks for visiting. Have a no. good day. You, you keep him hospitalized, man. Even yeah. if you can't help him anymore, you keep him hospitalized to protect himself and protect the public. So exactly. I don't think that Carol, that Carol Cole really failed. No. I believe it was a total failure on the mental health system right. in Nevada, California, and well, Missouri. Missouri. Yeah, I think yeah. it was Missouri. Um, because he went to all those places mm-hmm. and said, please help me. And time and time again, they're like, eh, no. Yeah, no, not today. Not today. No. Uh, you know, or they, they let him stay for like uh, um, a month. Yeah. And go, huh, that's surprising. You're cured. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Which, I mean, honestly, there's really no way to cure sexual deviance like that. You know what I mean? Well, you could probably medicate it. Or... Well, I mean, maybe. Well, part of it, though, and this is with any illness, um, it's teaching different like life skills. Right, yeah. For example, like, I'm naturally a very aggressive person, um, and I, I was very hot-tempered, and I didn't know how to control myself and not beat the shit out of people. Right. Until there's two there's two parts to this because actually I'm talking to Monk Steppenwolf about this, um, who is uh, for those of you that don't know is a convicted serial killer, uh, yeah. and he's in Michigan. But him and I've been emailing back and forth. We were talking about what it takes. Larry for a person. Rains was his original name, right? Brother of Danny Rains. Yes. But uh, you know why can't some people be rehabilitated? Because well, number one. No matter what your problem is, you don't have a problem until you have a problem. And what right. that means is I can tell you that you're an alcoholic, and I don't care if you're drinking a fifth of Jim Beam every single day. Right. And that's what you need to function, and it's affecting your whole life. If in your mind you don't have a problem and you're not an alcoholic. You don't have a problem. Then you don't have a problem. Exactly. So why are you going to go to a program or even work it? You, if, even if you go to a program, you're not going to work the program. Right. You're just going to go there to, to, to piss it away. Right. It's called lip service. but Yeah. yeah. You know, um, until you have your aha moment like I had um, with my anger issues and you go, holy shit, I have a problem. Now, that's part one. I have a problem. Yes. Now, once you know and you can admit to yourself and you can see the bigger picture that you have a problem, now you can start to work on it. So now you can work the program that you're in. If that program doesn't work, go to a different program. It might take three or four or five tries. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you're going to find a program that works for you. I got lucky. I got the right program right off the get-go. Yeah. It worked fantastic for me. I still try to work it to this day. And I haven't had, I haven't been in, in anger management for more than a decade. Why? Um, but, um, oh, no, I guess, yeah, it has been a decade. Holy shit. Because uh, my, last, my last class that I was actually teaching was when I was 40. Oh, wow. Cause, yeah, because oh, I shit. graduated That's at right. 39. and 50 this year. Yeah, I turned 50 this year. But um, so that's that's number one. Number two is there's no magic cure to anything. That's true too. So once you learn these life skills, and if they could have taught Carol Cole or this jackass here that we're talking about now, these life skills, it's a matter of being able to utilize them. I can give you a box of tools, but if I don't show you how to use them and you don't use them, then right. they're all for naught. So. Let's talk about the anger management a- aspect of it, and hopefully it'll, it'll make sense with the rest of what we're talking about with teaching skills. For me, I know my, my warning signs internally. Okay. Number one is my negative self-talk. So let's say that I'm in a confrontation, and whoever I'm you know, having this heated argument with is really pushing me to the edge. The first thing I'm going to hear in my head is, you know what, fuck this guy. Fuck that. What a piece of shit motherfucker now i'm not even listening to what he's saying all i'm hearing is this negative self-talk right number two is i start to my my, my heart starts to pound a little harder mm-hmm. and number three my palms get sweaty and oh, i yeah. get really quiet when those warning signs even begin to pop up now now at first it was hard it was right. hard to freaking work the program the first i'd say year or two that i was working with this now what I normally do is when those even begin to happen, I start getting the negative self-talk. I announce that I'm going to stop. Okay, I'm going to stop our argument right here. I can't do this right now. I'm going to go for a walk, and I'll be back, and I'll set a time, like an hour. I'll be back in an hour. Okay. I'll come back in an hour, and 
if I still haven't resolved it or I still haven't calmed down in my head, because I have to ask myself questions on this on this walk. It's a it's pretty it's a little complicated, but you want to really figure out what you what message you need to 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 prevail. To, right. You know, to to to, to, let your, to get across. Yeah. To get across. Um. So if I'm still not calm enough to do it, I, hey man, I'm still not ready to do it. I'll be back in like a half an hour. Right. And I'll go out again, and it will go on until the time that my mind goes, okay. We can now go and address this problem in a nonviolent manner, and let's get a resolution. Right. And guess what? It's okay to take two or three timeouts. You can come back, start discussing it again, and all of a sudden get those warning signs. Hey, got to stop. Right. <laughs> because for me, I found out that being violent has a lot of repercussions. The, the obvious one being legal. Right, right. You knock right. someone out, that's assault, you're going to jail. I've been arrested a shit ton of times. Um but number two, it affects how you handle life and how people perceive you. So yeah. I want to come off as not a threat. Why is that? Well, because number one, I own a business, and if you're a threat, people don't want to do business with you. You okay over there? Yeah. I just heard my phone ding, and I wanted to shut to turn the sound off. Sorry. Oh, okay. I just wonder what you're doing. Um, you know, and ever since I started working the program, honestly, I'm happier with myself. I'm happier with my freaking life, and my interactions have been better. So that all plays into this. If we would, if if back then we could have taught people like Carol Cole or this dude here <coughs> life skills, right, and and give them resources to go. Hey, man, when you're feeling this way, there's a place you can go. Right. You know, and yeah, it's going to say you're not killing people like you want to kill them inside. <clears throat> Let's figure out some other way for you to get rid of that feeling of that feeling. Something, right. But something productive, like maybe you're working out. Maybe you're hitting a, a, a punching bag, you know, or a speed bag. Um, maybe you're jerking off. And I'm not even kidding. Like may, maybe your whole thing to calm you down is you got to go into a bathroom and jerk off. Yeah, pull one off. Hey, it's it's way better than knocking the shit out of somebody or especially mm-hmm. murdering somebody. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I hear what you're saying completely. Yeah, and have someone you can trust to talk to. Right. You know, I'm lucky, you know, even now because I have an amazing support group, you know. Uh, Except for me who drives you crazy. You drive me fucking nuts. No, <laughs> like, I can call you. I can wake you up in the middle of oh, your totally. sleep and go... This is what the fuck's happening. I'm so goddamn pissed. And and talk it through. You know, I've got you. I've got Dawn. I've got a, a ton of people. I've got an amazing support group. And yeah. I wish that everybody could have the same support group. Right. Because I, I remember when you went to Nevada for your son's graduation, you called me up late at night one time saying, I just need to talk before my food gets here. And it's like, <laughs> okay, talk. Yeah. You were frustrated. And I was just like, okay, talk. I don't care. Yep. Very, very frustrated. I, well, I understand why. I, I was there this last weekend, but yeah. Yeah. Good so, times. But yeah. So at the beginning of Russell's trial, he pled not guilty to the three murders he was being charged with. However, he claimed he had, quote, an uncontrollable urge to rape and kill. Then in a shocking twist, he confessed to murdering four women the four women prior to the three murders he was on trial for, as well as the other 11 sexual assaults. Now, during his psychological evaluations, experts determined he didn't have the capacity of understanding the seriousness of his actions or that the murders he committed were wrong. Therefore, the jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity, and he, too, was sent to the Waypoint Center for Mental Health Care to serve his time. Now, at the time, the investigation into the murders that Russell committed was considered the most expensive in Ontario's history when they accrued approximately, check this out, $30,000. That is nothing compared to who, Lake and Ng. And it's 30000 Canadian, too, and it's 75 cents on the dollar. Yeah, so, but still. No, yeah, well, no, they're, they're like, we're a dollar, they're 75 cents. Oh, okay. That's on average. Okay. So it's way less than that. So you got to go, okay, if it's 30000 75 cents on the dollar. So every thousand dollars, seven hundred and fifty dollars. There's thirty thousand. So that'd be what seventy five hundred times three. Seventy five. There's uh, fifteen. Twenty two. Are you using your fingers? Yeah, twenty two thousand five hundred dollars. I use my fingers too. 
I had to pull down my pants for that one. I know, right? So since his confinement, he has filed petitions every year to obtain obtain more lenient housing conditions. And every year, the families of his victims fight to get his petitions denied. Because you got to fight for your right to party, motherfuckers. That's right. Now, he has also undergone chemical castration, and he was prescribed Lupron, which is supposed to lower his testosterone to suppress his urges. So, I mean, there is that. You know, but the hormones only go so much because exactly. when, when your brain is is telling you this is what's going to make you feel good. Yeah, I mean, anyway, go no, ahead. I agree with what you're saying. So now that's those are the three solved. I mean, the thirteen solved murders. Okay, now thanks to a new book which is based on the notes and diaries written by a former detective sergeant by the name of Dennis Alsa, the other sixteen unsolved murders might finally get solved. Now, also worked for the Ontario Provincial Police from 1950 through 1979. And during that time, he kept all of his notes and research collected in his diaries and about the murders until his death in 2012. Dear diary. I know, right? I was sitting he here. He kept several journals, I had, apparently. I had my toque on my head. <laughs> tossing around a toonie. Is that what it is? Oh, the toque is the hat. The huh. toque is the hat. A toonie is the $2 coin. Yeah. So upon his death, Alsop's diaries were passed down to his son, who turned them over to a local detective and professor by the name of Mark, I'm sorry, Mike Arntfeld. Uh, talking about the diaries, Arntfeld said, it's unclear when it all came together, but Alsop established his compendium of his original diary entries from the 60s and 70s with old documents from bygone area, photostats, teletype transcripts, and documents created from now extinct technologies that were thought lost to history. Now, once the author, once Artfelt received the documents from Alsop's son, he used his resources from the university and his law enforcement contacts to try and identify the suspects involved with the unsolved murders from the period in question. He had his conclusions reviewed by a peer group before he published them in his new book, Murder City, the Untold Story of Canada's Serial Killer Capital. In the book, Artfeld identified two additional serial killers for the first time, alleged serial killers for the first time. One of them is said to have killed four children in Toronto after he eluded the authorities in London, Ontario. Now, um, I'm sorry, Artfeld said through Alsop's diary entries, he knew who did it and he was basically stonewalled from making arrests because they felt he didn't have enough. They wanted a slam dunk. So he kept tabs on these people on his own time until they moved from London. And it seems that at least in one case, there are other victims in Toronto connected to the same killer. Now, Artfelt noticed that there were similarities between some of the crime scenes. So he used technology and resources that weren't available to Alsop to determine there were anywhere from one to four serial killers in operation during the detective's time. All of them operated in London, Ontario, using a similar MO, kind of like the freeway murders, the freeway killings in California. Right, right, right. Remember? Yep. And How can I forget? I, I featured know. all three of them. You did feature, and one of them's your favorite. Patrick, Patrick, please tell me that you, you can hear this. I know you you're still che- love me. <laughs> Patrick Kearney. I know you're cheating on me because you're a whore. <laughs> but I forgive you, baby. Just He's come a back. whoring grandpa. <laughs> Patrick, come back. You know I need your loving. <laughs> Patrick, come back. You're horrible. So, however, even if the 16 unsolved murders were committed by one killer, London, Ontario would still hold the record for being the city with the, quote, largest verified concentration of serial killers operating in one place at one time per capita. According to Arntfeld, New York and Los Angeles at any given time had four or five. But London at the time had a mean population of 170,000 people. In, the, in those megacities, the per capita equivalent would have to have been between 80 to 90 serial killers per city. Isn't that crazy? That doesn't surprise me. And here's why. Here's why. Yeah. I might even make fun of Canada now. <clears throat> but Canada has a lot of unpopulated area. Oh, yeah, I get into that here in a minute, but yeah. So, okay, you and I were talking about this earlier. If I was to murder somebody in the Portland metro area, what's the one thing that I don't really have? Well, I don't have time. Exactly. Because every place is pretty well traveled, unless you're our current serial killer who figured out how to, you know. Has figured it out. Figured it out. 
but and that's for our, our current serial killer that's out here. Dude, seriously, knock it the fuck off. No shit, yo. And give us the exclusive. But <laughs> I died, Greg. But um, so you're out there and you're okay. It's like when I was going to Calgary all the time. Mm-hmm. Once I got onto, I want to say it's Highway Two. That uh, would take me into Calgary. Uh, and I honestly, I can't remember. Uh, but um, uh, where did I? I think I caught it out of Cramden or something like that, or Cranston or something. Like that. Anyway, once you get on that highway, though, dude, there's nothing. Isn't that the stretch of highway where you were stopped to go to the bathroom or whatever, and the cops pulled over because your wife had called to find out where you were? Yeah, because my cell phone wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I didn't have the freaking uh, sprint at the time screwed everything up. Yeah. It was great. So the Mounties had to stop you. Yeah, the, hey, what's your name, eh? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's, there's RCMP. That's great. Uh, uh, my name is Scott Alexander. Hey, your wife called us, eh? <laughs> she yeah. thinks that you died. You need to call her, eh? I can't. My fucking phone doesn't work. <laughs> eh? Eh? <laughs> you want some water? We have some in the boot. Which is a trunk, by the way. <laughs> now, you, you want to know what I think a boot is? Hold on, let me reach down here. It's like something you put on your foot. <laughs> See this right here? Yeah, that's a boot. That's my cowboy boot right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a boot. That's a boot. The thing behind a car is called the trunk. <laughs> Just like what's on an elephant's face, a fucking trunk. And an elevator is called an elevator, not a lift. Not a lift. <laughs> Let's get it right, Canada. And an apartment is an apartment, not a flat. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not a flat. Would you like to come up to my flat? I think you're talking about shoes. I'm going to look, honey. You wear a size like six, and I wear a size 13. I don't think I can come up to your flat at fucking all. <laughs> get some bigger feet. That's right. Now, um, people wonder why... London, Ontario, it's such, you know, the breeding ground for serial killers. Keep in mind, the real reasons are unknown. However, Arntfeld proposed several theories in his new book. One of his main theories could be the fact that London is chosen by a lot of marketers for major brands as a test market when they introduce new products in Canada. Now, with its demographic makeup, population, and average income, it is one of Canada's most, quote, average cities. Therefore, it is one of the city's major brand marketers depend on when they want to determine whether their new products will be successful in Canada. In comparison, in America, we have Richmond, Virginia, Muncie, Indiana, and Rochester. You know, Rochester, New York. A shout out to Rochester, New That's York, right. and, your, and your police department, the by the way. The police department's amazing out for, there. For those of you, for, those, for, lo- for our listeners that do live up around and towards and in Rochester, honest to goodness, you have a good police force. You guys, tell tell your cops, thank you. Like, yeah. seriously, an amazing police force. You guys take care of your hookers. They're on top of it. They don't mm-hmm. let people, like, when people start dying, they're on top of that shit. Not like the rest, not not like Vancouver PD or anything like that, where they'll <laughs> sit there and go, well, we have a whole pile or of bunch, Or Portland. Well, we have a bunch of women that are dying, but they're not connected at all. Yeah, no. And then you go, you know, sniff, sniff. Oh, I smell bullshit. That's why I smell. Yeah, I smell I a smell bunch of bullshit. Too. Sniff, sniff, sniff. Yeah, that's definitely that's bullshit. I was raised on a farm. That's bullshit. Yeah. Now, in com- so with those American test markets, they have also been known for their higher than the national average crime rates, according to Arnfeld. No, you're going to love this quote. It's not that having the McRib first or being a test market city makes you a haven for serial killers. It's that the underlying sociological factors that make those places preferred locales for marketers also seem to be dispropor- seem to see disproportionate numbers of sexually deviant and violent offenders. Now, another one of Arnfield's series centers around Highway 401. This is a major highway that runs along Ontario's southern border. It was also built four years before the American interstate highway system was constructed. And according to Arnfeld, studies have since shown that from 56 onward, the U.S. interstate changed the criminal landscape significantly. Yeah, because now you have a big thoroughfare. Exactly. And since then, the FBI has actually developed a highway serial killing initiative to investigate the connection between major highways and serial murders. Now, finally, London, Ontario, also known as Forest City, also provides more remote areas than a lot of other urban areas, while it still allows for a large population base for killers to access potential victims. 
These types of remote cities sometimes lack informal social control. And at the same time, they don't have the major communication networks or media outlets that are available in other major cities. So at the time the murders were committed, the technology was lacking for the authorities to have a formal record-sharing system between departments. Therefore, federal, provincial, and local departments weren't always able to identify similarities between the various crime scenes in different jurisdictions. Now, the purpose of Arnfeld's new book was twofold. He wanted to shed a light on London's dark criminal history and provide current law enforcement officials an inspiration to solve the unsolved murders. He says, I'm hoping the book will help empower the cops out there like Alsup and like I was, who stick with a case in spite of department politics, who stick with a case because it's their calling, who will see things to fruition, whether it's while they're still police officers or decades later when they turn over that information. Now, I have not had the opportunity to read the book yet, but I can't wait to see if it names the two new alleged serial killers by name. I wasn't able to find that out. But it then I didn't have a whole lot of time to put this together either. But I agree with you with the, you know, with the population the way it was, you know, with the the demographic of the area and the population base, it was it was a haven for a serial killer back yeah. then. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. And I started thinking about that more and more with our with our killer here. Mm-hmm. Is that why would you dispose of bodies? Why would Dayton Leroy Roger dispose of bodies in heavily forested areas and take his victims there? Because it affords you time. It affords you the one thing that you're not going to get right. in the inner city or anywhere close to the inner city. Because there's always that chance the closer you are to the city that somebody's going to drive by, walk by, hike by, walk, walk their dog, something. Right. If you're way out in the middle of the woods, the chances of somebody seeing you... Are way slimmer, yeah. Yeah, way. Yeah, because the, the, you know, the alleged new serial killer here in Portland takes his victims to remote, yet, you know what I mean, where they're remote, but they're still going to be found. You right. know, rather quickly. Right, right. So... Yeah, I agree with you on that one. But yeah, this this one was a pretty interesting case to, you know, cover. Yeah, that's why I wanted to cover it, but I just didn't have time. Anyway, let's wrap this didn't. one up because we got to get to the next episode. I <clears throat> Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook, join Citizens of Brutal Nation, and then head on over to our merch store, see what we got to offer uh, let's see what else. Um, ah, screw it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what we did. All right. <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. Correct. <laughs> this show's copyright 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. And remember, if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying. Thieving bastards. bastards. And we will see you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.